I'm going to segue from host into storytelling right now. Um, and I'm going to start with, my name's Erica, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Hello, fellow friends of Bill. Um, so if I don't drink, this December I will have 30 years of sobriety. That is freedom. Uh, I got sober when I was two. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so I'm Irish, English, and Scottish, which means that every cell in my body wants more and loves absolutely everything. When I was four, I learned to read, and I ate and devoured books. Um, I also loved Pop-Tarts, and so I would eat a Pop-Tart and take it in my room, and then I would know there was another Pop-Tart, and I would go and sneak to the kitchen and get one more Pop-Tart and come back. And I also was sipping alcohol, and, and uh, I always wanted to do what the adults were doing. I was an only child, and none of my mom's friends had any kids, and I didn't have a dad. So I'm just going to throw that in there. I felt really bound by that, by that thing, and I would go to school in first grade, and they would say, Erica is an orphan. And I'd say, I'm not an orphan. I, I, have a, I have a mom. And they'd go, Erica's a bastard. Yeah. And I would go up, and I didn't know what that meant. And I asked a teacher, and they told me. And it was that, that hole, right? That part of me that was different. That part of me that wasn't good enough. I wasn't as good as you. And those are things, you know, as a child, that stuff felt very permanent. Um, but what I knew was that my mom was a legal secretary. We grew up in, I grew up in D.C. And all of the attorneys, they would have these parties and think mad men, lots of grab ass and all that stuff. But there were always glasses of scotch. There were always tumblers of scotch. And I was this tiny little child, and I remember standing on my tippy toes to grab that tumbler and just take that sip. And I remember, I can still feel it in my jaw, that the taste was disgusting. But once that liquid hit, that was freedom for a time. And then I was seven years old, and my best friend, um, her name was Shannon, a nice little Irish girl, and her parents were these beautiful hippies, and she had a brother, and so I would spend as much time over there, because they were an actual family. The mom would cook dinner and come and sit on the husband's lap, and he would wrap his fingers around her curls, and they would hug, and they loved each other, and they owned a liquor store. And they would all go to bed 9, 9.30, and I had this alcoholic mind that just wouldn't stop. And I was always thinking about how different I was. And I was always looking for my father. And I would ask people on the streets. I would go up to them if they looked like me and say, are you my dad? Or if I saw people that looked like me, what, what's your dad's name? And I don't even know why I asked because I didn't have his name. But there was this searching. And I was tormented by it. But I would go to their house as often as possible. And when they would go to sleep at night, I would sneak down into the kitchen in my holly hobby nightgown and they had the, the big gallo jugs of rosé wine. And I would stand there in their kitchen and drink out of that jug so that I could go to sleep. Growing up, it escalated. Alcoholism, um, some people think it's a choice. For me, it definitely was just like breathing. I needed alcohol. A lot of people drink and don't react to alcohol. I needed alcohol. And once I had a little, I needed more. And once I took more, I developed a tolerance. And so then by 10, I was smoking cigarettes and I was smoking weed. I progressed to speed by the time I was 11. By the time I was 15, 16, I was doing everything but heroin. Um, and I remember one time I was, I was 12 years old, and my mom and her pedophile boyfriend went to a drive-in, and they were supposed to be gone all night. And so I was wearing my little bra and panties and my little purple kimono robe that I loved, and I was, felt like I had my own apartment, felt like I was free, and I decided to go drink some Budweiser Tall, and then I moved on to the box wine because it was the 80s and we were super classy like that. <laughs> and then I went for the bottle of Jack Daniels on top of the fridge. 
And I remember guzzling that and feeling that fire. And then that's the last thing I remember. Until coming to and laying on my bed and my robe is open and I know that I'm exposed and there are chunks of vomit in my hair and my mom's boyfriend is hovering over me and I know that I need to protect myself and I know that I need to cover myself up but I'm so drunk that I can't move my limbs. Luckily he didn't do anything but I got alcohol poisoning for four days and I continued to drink. It didn't matter how bad and incomprehensibly, incomprehensibly demoralizing my behavior was, I felt justified in it. I felt free. Alcohol and drugs are the things that made it okay for me to be in my skin, that made it okay for to me to live with a mother who was just gone and to live with Donald and to sort of navigate all of the feelings of hormones and differences and moving to Los Angeles and being so different. I loved being a rebel child. I loved speaking my mind and saying what I wanted to say and do what I wanted to do, but my choices were really, really screwed up, and they led to huge consequences. By the time I was 17 years old, I was a senior in high school, and I just wanted to die. Every minute, my eyes would open in the morning, and there would just be that that realization that I was still alive and that deep, deep sorrow of how am I going to get through this day. So I would take, full, uh, take a handful of Black Beauties or whatever speed I had, go back to sleep so that when my alarm went off in an hour, I had enough energy to get up. I would drink and do drugs all day, trying to find that perfect balance, trying to chase that, that part of me that felt okay. But I couldn't get high anymore. No matter how much I drank, no matter how much I used, I couldn't turn off my head. They ended up putting me in a mental institution two days before Christmas, which also had a dual diagnosis program. We couldn't open the windows. We couldn't go outside. We couldn't take showers in private. We couldn't smoke. I couldn't sleep with anybody. I I couldn't throw things. I couldn't punch windows. I couldn't do anything but feel. And for the first time in my life, I had to feel everything that I had been running from my whole life. And suddenly the reality of of everything, all of my life, my, my choices, my consequences hit me like a ton of bricks. I was pissed. And we also had to go to school, and they showed us movies like Sid and Nancy, which was highly appropriate, and (laughs) less than zero. I wish I was kidding, but seriously. But I had this this chubby little um, drug counselor named Dave, and he had a lisp and braces. And it was the 80s, so he wore, like, pleated pants and little bolo booties with heels and a little bolo tie. And he had, like, the slicked backside with the curly jerry curl on top. And a little pencil mustache. And he would say, Erica, you're an alcoholic and you need to get sober. (laughs) And I couldn't think of anything I wanted to do less in this life. And he said, you're powerless over alcohol and your life is very unmanageable. And I thought that was the weakest thing I'd ever heard in my life. I'm powerful. I make all my choices. I don't need anything from anyone. I don't ask anyone for anything. Fuck the fuck off. That's how I felt, right? But what I've learned since is that feelings are not facts, and I was terrified. And all that tough girl stuff, that was all just casing around that little marshmallow center inside. But I was not going to get sober, and I was turning 18 in six weeks, and so I was going to leave, and I was going to check myself out, and I was going to kill myself. I figured the only thing I hadn't done was get married, have kids, and get divorced, and I didn't want to do the first two. So I figured I'd just skip to the last one. And I loved The Wall. I was obsessed with The Wall, Pink Floyd's, still my favorite album of all time. 
And we would have people from different recovery groups come in and talk to us. And one day, on a Thursday, my 18th birthday was the following Tuesday. So this was five days before. And uh, this person who'd been in the wall came in and spoke to us. And the only reason I paid attention was because it was this person from the wall. And suddenly, recovery was very interesting. And they said, what are you doing? What are you doing when you get out of here? And I said, yeah, well, I'm turning 18 on Tuesday, and I'm just like, I'm done. I'm done with all this crap. And they said, why don't you go to this meeting instead? On Venice Beach, there's sand, there's, you know, why don't you just go see how you feel? And because this person suggested it, I went. So that Sunday, I got up and I got a pass. It was my first time out of the hospital, riding in a car again. I still had to have a staff member with me, but I felt like a quasi-human being again. And I'm sitting in this circle of 50 people, and I'm not like the circle kind of person and the holding hands and the so not part of my wheelhouse. And, uh, and I'm 17, and I'm thinking, what in the hell just happened to my life? Like, how am I one of these people? And I feel like I have alcoholic just sort of written over my forehead in bright red. And as I'm sitting there, and I'm judging the shit out of everybody there, and all the differences, and I'm not an old white dude, and I don't have like a long mullet, and I don't have this, and I, I'm not this and that, these people started talking about their feelings. And I understood. And for the first time, I felt a connection with something other than my dis-ease. And there was this voice, and I'm not a religious person, but it was a spiritual experience, and this voice said, this is your only shot, and if you don't do this, you're going to die, so you need to pay attention. I don't know what happened. To this day, I have no idea, but I went back that day, and I, Dave goes, how was meeting? And I said, it was good, I got a sponsor, and he's like, why do you need a sponsor? You're not an alcoholic. And I said, actually, I am. I'm an alcoholic and I'm an addict. And his mouth just dropped open and he dropped on the couch. And I talked to him many years later. He said to this day, it was like I was his worst, <laughs> worst client he'd ever had. Um, and I decided to stay. So I checked myself in for another six weeks. And I started this journey of discovery that a lot of us try to make when we're trying to figure out. And, uh, you know, the first step, they tell you you're powerless. You're powerless and your life's unmanageable. That was a big one to swallow. Because I wanted my freedom. I wanted my ability to do what I wanted to do. But when I started looking at the reasons that I made the choices that I made and the things I was running from and I started to deal with them and I started to actually take responsibility for my life, I no longer needed to run. I still made a ton of mistakes. I'm not going to tell you I did this perfectly. I stopped drinking and using drugs, but cigarettes became a lot more important in all the boys and some of the girls. And... uh, Lots of chocolate and uh, lots of coffee. And I have my dear friend here. (laughs) We've barely slept. And yeah, so um, it was an experience. And I didn't know that I was still going to be here. I didn't think it was possible for a girl like me who'd made all these mistakes, who had done all of these things, say I was filled with shame and regret. And I assumed that your outsides were very, you know, that if you looked good, that you must be perfectly happy and you must have everything you ever wanted and you must not know what it feels like to hurt and to be broken. But I learned from listening and watching other people and stopping thinking about myself all the time and being useful to other people that we're all just trying to get through a day. We're all doing the best we can. And none of us, you know, I was angry with my parents for a really long time. And today I know that my mom did not hold me as a child and go, hmm, what can I do to fuck her up? How can I really just get there? And my dad, you know, I met my dad when I was 24 
years old. I was seven years sober, and uh, I have 19 half-brothers and sisters, and my dad was broken in a very unique way. And he did the best that he could. And I used to have this regret as this child. If he had just been there, then things would have been different. And, and we, my mom wouldn't have been so unhappy, and Donald wouldn't have been there, and all of these things would have been different. Today, as the 47-year-old woman standing in front of you today, I can tell you that everything is exactly the way it was supposed to be. That I am grateful today because of where I come from. That I get to be useful in a whole different way because of the experiences that I've had, and I wouldn't change that for anything. Um, so anyway, I truly am free of alcoholism one day at a time, and I hope to be an old sober bitch, as we say around the rooms, with tennis balls on my shoes, pinching newcomers' butts, talking about the old days with some, like, fuchsia hair or something. But I have a beautiful, beautiful life today, and I'm so grateful that I didn't give up and that I didn't give in to all of those thoughts that told me that I wasn't good enough and I didn't deserve a life. You're all so magnificent, and thank you for being here. Woo!